You know, you can be in church and you can go to church for years and years and years and you can get so used to not seeing anything happen that you can think, you know, I'm praying for someone that doesn't hear. I'm praying to someone that doesn't see. I pray the same prayer for the last 10 years and no change. My prayer this morning was... Reveal what is in me that is stopping the flow of the Spirit. Reveal what it is in me that's stopping the move of the Spirit in the church. And I say that for all of you to pray that prayer. Because God's in the revival business. That's what God does. God, When God's in the house, there's a revival. Amen? Has to be. You can't come into a church where God is there with manifest power and not have something happen. Right? So when God's in, he's a revival God. So if we're not in revival, it's not his fault, is it? The fact that the church is not in revival is it's the fact that it's a fault with us. Something's got to change. So I ask, what is it, God? I have to pray more. I have to seek you more. I have to read the scriptures more. What is it? I have to give up sin more. More. So I'm saying, what is it? What other things do I have to uncover? Tell me what it is. What is it that's stopping it? We have to go into detail. We have to find, get the details from God. So God will go, you've, you, you've got a problem with this. Go, okay, got it. That's what it is. We need it revealed to us so that we can stop it. Because then when, it's, when it, God's cleaned up his house... When the bride is ready, what does the word say? When the bride is ready, he's going to come. Yeah, he's going to come. And when he comes, look out, there's going to be a revival. It's going to be powerful. Could this little church bring about revival? Is it possible? Two old women, 84 and 82, one stone blind, brought a revival to Lewis. Isn't that incredible? Two women. You would think an 84 and 82 year old, like, what could they do? They're old now. They're retired. They're out of, out of commission. Out to pasture, in a sense. You know, you're thinking like that. No way. They, they took it on themselves. They said, no way. I don't like the way our church is. I don't like the fact that the youth don't have anything to do with God. I'm going to change. We're going to change this. So we're going we're gonna to read from a, uh, an account of a revival. The reason I want to read this account to you is because um, we've been praying for a move of God in this church. We've been praying and, and for our community. Who knows Adelaide needs a move of God? Yeah? Who knows that Adelaide is probably the most, you know, to the most part, very atheistic and culturally unaccepting of Jesus Christ. Who knows to be a Christian in Adelaide is a tough call because um, you know, uh, people straight away think there's something wrong with you when you say, I'm a Christian. And most of us you know, hide our faith. We're very, very careful not to mention things about Jesus. And, and it's, it's understandable in one sense because you, know, you 
you really cop it if you if you mention and if you push that you're really you know a full-on Christian in your workplace, you can be persecuted. I know people that you know when they let people know that they're a real true believer in Jesus Christ, they were get, getting persecuted in their workplace constantly. So it is a tough tough thing to be a Christian in in Adelaide, any anywhere in the world really. Like how tough would it be to be a Christian in Iraq at the moment, or in um, Syria or somewhere, you know? Um, entire um, in Syria, there was some uh, villages and areas where they were had been Christian um, since the day of Christ. Like these were converted to Christianity right back at uh, when Jesus was around, and that's that's how old their heritage goes. They go back two thousand years of Christian heritage. Not like here in Australia, it's back to the actual time. Their their forefathers. So these are Christian people. Christian people, two thousand years of it. And guess what happened to them just recently? Completely destroyed by ISIS. End of their heritage. Bang. Now, that's saying something. Christ kept them for 2,000 years and now they're gone. A few fled and they um, are out of there. Um, and the only reason I know about this actual particular place is because I bumped into a Syrian man many months ago. And um, he, he was telling me, and I was nearly in tears when he told me the story, because he came from Syria. And he said, my uncle got away. He says, I've got cousins and I've got family. Lot, big family over there. Big, you know, like a European-type family. They're always big, you know. It's not in Europe. Um, but they, they were gone. And he says, i only got one uncle left. So I don't know how I got onto this, but, but what, I'm, what I'm getting to is that um, God wants to do something in Adelaide. God wants to do something big. I know it in my spirit. But I'm, I want, what I want to share with you today is the vision. It's not going to be like, it, not necessarily, this is not a blueprint, right? What I'm about to read is not how we, if we expect these things to take place, then we'll know we're in revival. It's not about that at all. All this is is an account of something that took place uh, last century. And it was an incredibly powerful move of the Spirit. And I um, tr- transcribed it from a, from a cassette tape. Uh, and it was an old recording of a guy called Duncan Campbell. And uh, Duncan Campbell was speaking in his thick Scottish... It wasn't even... Was it a Scottish accent? I think it was. Gaelic. Gaelic accent. And it was quite hard to... It was a difficult thing to transcribe. And it took me... Uh, many days to transcribe it, get it right. And there's some words in here that I wasn't sure of. So, um, But what impacted me the most is when I read this account or when I listened to the account was it was truly moving, truly impacting. It gave me a fresh, clear vision of what revival looks like. And he describes it perfectly well. So, And I want to read it for you because in our prayer meetings I feel that we need to all have a have a linked understanding, linked heart, a linked um, concept of what it is that we're really praying for. Are we praying that God will use us to evangelize? Is that what we're praying for? Or are we praying for a revival? And they're two different things, and and Duncan Campbell's going to make that very clear. So I'm going to read through it for you. Firstly, I'm just going to pray. So if you could bow your heads for a second. Lord, I need your spirit now, even though I'm reading these words that are straight off the page. I need your spirit because, uh, Lord, you're going to comment through me during it, and I pray that these 
words will impact every heart here. Lord, every single person here needs your spirit to start to really touch their lives and work in their lives and work in their heart so that they can capture and uh, catch the vision of, of revival and they'll get, a, get it in their heart and that they'll be stirred from this account and that they'll want it also. And Lord, that we will, as a church, that we will secure revival in this church and Lord, we'll see our community become God aware. We'll see this and we'll start to believe for the hardest people in our fam- among our families and friends that they would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so we're going to believe for miracles. We're going to believe for incredible moves of your spirit in our life and in the life of those around us. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. All right, so this is um, chapter 12 of my book, God's Heart Cry for Revival. And it's called Revival in the Scottish Hebrides. And Duncan Campbell starts out, he says, I would like to make it perfectly clear what I understand by revival. When I think of revival, I'm not thinking of high-pressured evangelism, like Billy Graham type stuff. I'm not thinking of crusades or special efforts convened and organized by man. This is not in my mind at all. Revival is something altogether different from evangelism on its highest level. And then he says, thank God for all that has been accomplished through evangelism. I represent a vision in Scotland that does much in the field of evangelism. We have at least 100 workers in our mission. We thank God for all that has been accomplished through their efforts over the years. But when I think of their efforts, I am not thinking of revival. I know in this country, and he's talking about America, I know in this country you very often speak of having revival meetings. Now that is something I just can't understand. It would be better for you to speak of your efforts as evangelistic meetings or evangelistic efforts, efforts because that is not revival. How, do you, how many times have you heard, you know, like a, a visiting speaker's coming to Adelaide and they call it a revival meeting? Yeah? Come, we're having a revival. It's like, really? How come I, <laughs> I haven't felt anything change in my community? Because a revival's not that. It's not a visiting speaker who gets a whole bunch of people in. The, the church pastor might think it's a revival because, look, the church is full. But that's not revival. That's not revival. That's just a visiting speaker coming to speak and maybe get a few souls to believe in Jesus in the process through evangelism. But that's not revival. So revival, Duncan Campbell says, is a moving of God in the community and suddenly the community becoming God-conscious before a word is said by any man representing any special effort. So the community at large becoming God-conscious, realizing God exists and that he's true, and they, got to, they also realize that they're sinners and that they have to repent and get saved. All done by the Holy Spirit. My question is, is the Holy Spirit capable? Is the Holy Spirit capable of that? Absolutely. Why do we, why do we have this assumption that God needs us? He doesn't actually need man. He can do it all on his own. But he uses man because he's gracious. He wants to see us. And why does he use us? Because he wants us to develop in our Christianity. So he wants us to pray and reach out to him and cry out to him. He wants that. He wants to see that effort on our part 
to love him with all our heart and to talk to people about him and to get our natures changed and so we become a transformed people and, and become a holy people and no longer living in sin. He wants to see those things. So he lets events transpire. Like our church, you know, I've, I've been really... Running this church has been... Or running it, I don't run it, God runs it. And I've just sort of rock up on Sundays and do my thing. But, you know, doing this has been the ch most challenging thing in my life. Really is. And lately, God has been pressing, pressing big time. Rob, get into prayer. Get into some deep prayer. You know, start spending quality, quality time in my presence and get the church into prayer. Get them moving in the spirit. Because when it comes down to it, no one is saved through our intellect and through our argument. It, they're saved by the Spirit of God. Amen? So if we don't have the Spirit of God active in our life because we don't pray much and God's not working in us much, then little wonder we don't see people getting saved much. You know, we've got to ask ourselves, here in Adelaide, when was the last time we as a, as a people have seen someone get saved, gloriously saved, like Stephen was talking about. By the way, Stephen, that was absolutely awesome. Isn't that an incredible account? Like how many years ago did you get saved? 2002. So people still get saved in the century. Yeah. And, you know, but when was the last time you brought someone to Jesus? When was the last time that you spoke and that person goes, you know what? What you're saying is true. I've never realized it. You know what? Can you help me, lead me to your Savior? When was the last time that's happened? And ask this not to make you feel bad that it's not happened. I ask you to say, that's what we should be going after as Christians. We've got to be that deep in the spirit that people want to come to know Jesus because we have Jesus in us. Because Jesus is radiating out of us. Amen? Jesus has got to, he's got to live in here. He's got to inhabit you. But you've got to open the door every day. You've got to say, come in, Lord. You know, make room in your heart. Push aside some ambition so that Jesus has some room. Push aside your busy schedule so Jesus has some room. Get him in your heart. Because you know what? Souls in the thousands depend on you walking in the Spirit. Souls depend on you being the kind of Christian Jesus died to make you. Really, think about that. How many people do you know? You know, every one of us, a few hundred at least, you know, over time. How many of them are saved? Bigger portion not than are, unless you grew up in a church. Right? So we've got a huge, huge issue there before God. And what I mean by that is, is those people might not have anyone else that they, that they could call Christian as friends. And they don't realize it now, but they're depending on you. Those souls that don't know Jesus are depending on you to walk in the Spirit for their salvation, even though they're rejecting it with all their heart right now. But who knows, in eternity, they're going to... If you haven't walked as the Christian, you should have walked in and you've not walked in the Spirit, you didn't 
get them to come to salvation, do you know what I'm saying? In eternity, according to Scripture, when they'll be, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is where those people will go, what do you think they'll be crying out from there to you and saying? I depended on you to not let me come here. That's what they'll be calling out from the grave to us in heaven. I depended on you, even though at the time I was hard, and you'll be saying, yeah, but I didn't want to you know, um, threaten our friendship. And he'll be or she'll be saying to you, it's not good enough, man. If I knew what you knew, I would have acted on it, they would have thought, you know, because that's what you'd think. They would be thinking, if I had the knowledge of Christ like you, I would have told my friend about it because I wouldn't have wanted them to come here. And that's why I always say I think the best thing a Christian could dwell on and get into their hearts is the reality of the eternal, eternal pit, abyss. Hell, whatever the Bible calls it. Does the Bible talk about that? Yeah? If, you're, if, you, if you read the Bible and don't see it mentioned, um, it's actually mentioned more by Jesus than heaven. Jesus mentions hell more frequently. Now, why is that? And I want to go into this just to help you understand, and I, I know some of you have heard me speak on this a number of times. The reason why Jesus mentions hell more than heaven in, in the Gospels, is that he wanted to keep men out of hell. And to him, he says, it is for this hour that I came. What he means is, is for the time of punishment on the cross that Jesus received on our behalf. That's the reason he came. He emphasized that. Now, if hell doesn't exist, what did, why did Jesus have to suffer on a cross? It doesn't make sense, does it? What's he keeping you out of? An eternal sleep, like the atheists believe? You know, sometimes, who likes sleep? Yeah, come on, be honest. Be honest. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I wish I could have more of it. Sleep is a beautiful thing. Ah, <laughs> little miss sleep over here. <laughs> There's a little book at home we've got with your face. But sleep is a beautiful thing. So if the atheists are true, that wouldn't be so bad, an eternal sleep, Right? But does the Bible say eternal sleep anywhere? The Bible says that when man dies, they, after that they face judgment. And then Jesus talks about the judgment that many will come before me on that day. And they'll say, Lord, I did this and I did that. And he'll say, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. Get away. He'll cast them into this place. Now, hell is a reality, and that's why Jesus died. That's the glory of the cross. That is the, the awesome power of the cross is in our salvation from what? Our salvation from hell. It's not salvation from debts so that you become prosperous. That's not the salvation message, is it? It's salvation from eternal condemnation so that you can live with him forever in a place much better than here. And anyone who would pass that up, to me, you know, it's crazy. If you pass it up, why? Because I, don't, I just don't think God exists. Really? There's plenty of evidences for the fact that God exists. 
I'll just tell you one. Just the eye alone. You know, the eye is so brilliantly designed that all the photographic equipment that we have today was developed, its blueprint was the human eye. So they studied the human eye, they worked out how it all worked, all the lenses and everything else, and from that, they developed photographic equipment. Photographic equipment wasn't the brainstorm of a man. They didn't, man didn't think that up. God had already thought it up in the eye. So the eye is evidence that it's, the design detail is so clear that man, when they studied it, could say, aha, aha. Someone had made it very, very clearly uh, pre- prevalent that it can be copied in another form, using glass and, and so on. That, that alone, just the eye is so beautifully designed. And get this, no photograph equipment that we've got yet equals the complexity of the eye. It is that complex. And when you get down to the cellular level, every cell, when they go inside it, when, when um, Charles Darwin looked at the cell, all he could see under their microscopes was a glob of jello. And he didn't think much of it. He says it was a glob of jello. It doesn't really look like much. So uh, it obviously came out of this primordial soup and you know, it just sort of multiplied and you know, became whatever. I'm not very good at the whole science of all that. But the thing is, is when they started to use these uh, you know, high-powered microscopes and look at the cell, the cell is like a, like a, like a city, they say. It's, it's that complex with all these um, you know, machines literal machines that then, then they look even smaller down into that machine and they find each machine has like a hundred or so working parts. And then they look at each of the parts and guess what they look like? Cogs and rotors, motors, little engine parts. They're looking right down at these microscopic things. What do they call them? Flagellums. The flagellums. And they're looking at these flagellums. Under like things that are so small, they're the small, uh, tiny things inside the cell. But that's the power of these microscopes, right? And uh, these men that are studying this are turning to Jesus Christ, or at least to God, and then to Jesus Christ, because they're looking, and going, "This is clearly designed." And then they found this: you take one little piece away from that flagellum, like one little cog, you remove that clog, and what happens? It stops. It it just it's like a car without a certain part, and it just, eh. you know what I mean? So that's, that tells you something real clear, that, that we are created by intelligence. The DNA, a, a, a pinprick of DNA, like a, a tiny, the smallest little spoonful of DNA has that much information in it, that much information that it has more information than all of the information combined in the world today on our computers and on the internet. How powerful is that? Right? That's just a, a tiny little drop of DNA. And they say about the DNA, it's an actual language. It's a, it's a written code. It's clearly written and, it, and it's got order and design. It's got a design to it. God exists, guys. So I don't know how I got on, on, down that road now. I'm trying to come back to where I, was, where I was. Does God exist? Yes. 
He has to exist. It's ridiculous to think he doesn't exist. Actually, what does the book of Proverbs say about someone who says that God does not exist? Only a fool says in his heart that God does not exist. You know, in saying that, and this is not me saying it, so don't, please don't say Rob said this, we live among a bunch of fools, according to Scripture. We live among fools that think life consists of eating and drinking and being entertained. That's what life is to most people. Can you relate to that? Did we once think that way? I know I did. Do we sometimes still think that way? <laughs> is it easy to slip into that? Why? Because we're culturally pulled that way. Our culture pulls us to think it's all about entertainment. It's all about having fun. It's all about, you know, um, eating, going to the best restaurant. I like restaurants. You know, I love the choice of beautiful cuisines that we have in Adelaide. But should they become an idol? Should it become the thing you live for? Or should the thing we live for be God? Yeah. So people, a lot of the time, have this inclination that God exists, that God is real, right? They think, yeah, he's real. Could he be real? But you know what? The implications of accepting God is the thing that stops them turning to God. They think, if I accept Jesus, then I've got to stop sinning. But I enjoy sinning. Yeah. But then you can be like a lot of the Christians today and don't stop sinning and be a Christian, <laughs> which is not true Christianity, by the way. Jesus died so that you would become holy. He died to make us a holy people. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So is holiness important? Is holiness imperative? Yeah. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wants to live in you. And if the Holy Spirit lives in you, guess what? You will be holy because the Holy Spirit is in you. You can't be unholy and have the Holy Spirit in you. It just It's like oil and water. You must be holy. He says, be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. All right, back to the book. Just check the time. Something. After. Don't look at the clock. All right. I'm sure you'll be interested to know. This is Duncan Campbell. I'm sure you'll be interested to know how this gracious movement began on the island of Lewis. And he just goes tells us a bit about the island of Lewis. Now, the island of Lewis is a very prosperous island, an island of 37,000 inhabitants. So it's a prosperous place. Keep that in mind. Because sometimes the hardest mission field are among the wealthy. Who knows that? It's as hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven as it is for a big giant camel to get through a tiny little eye of a needle. Why? Because it's pretty obvious. You know, when you're rich, you don't think you need anything. Why do I need to get saved? I am saved. I've got a billion dollars in the bank. But now the island is a very prosperous island, an island of 37,000 inhabitants. That's good to know because Adelaide is a very prosperous city in world standards. I say a prosperous island, perhaps more prosperous than many other parts of rural Scotland. The trade industry there is booming and men are making fortunes. 
I might also say that the island of Lewis produces more graduates from our universities in Scotland and in England than from any other part of Scotland on an average basis. So they're a highly intelligent people. That gives you a faint idea of the island into which God came in November of 1949. Isn't that amazing? God came to that kind of people, a prosperous, intelligent people. There's, there's hope yet. This is how it began. <clears throat> Two old women, two old women, one of them 84 years of age and the other 82. One of them stone blind. They were greatly burdened because of the appalling state of their own parish. Their own church was in a bad state, obviously not many people. It was true that not a single young person attended public worship. Not a single young man or young woman went to church. They spent their day perhaps reading or walking, but the church was left out of the picture. The two women were greatly concerned and they made it a special matter of prayer. And this is the verse that gripped them. It's Isaiah 44.3 and it says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessings upon thine offspring. So he's going to pour the water upon thirsty and floods on the dry ground. What that represents is Adelaide is dry. It's bone dry. It's wet today, but it's bone dry spiritually. Yeah? And he wants to pour water on him that is thirsty. That's the church. And on the dry ground, that's... Everyone else floods. He wants to flood everywhere else, but he wants to pour water on the thirsty. So what do we have to be? We have to be thirsty, right? We have to be thirsty for his presence. We have to be thirsty for his, his, his moving, the way for him to move in the church. We've got to be desperate that God can come to church and impact us with his presence. I'm, I'm looking forward to the, to the day that you get to that door and you can't get in here unless you're on your knees and you have to crawl in. And we'll be saying, hi, oh, how are you? And we're crawling in. Yeah? Wouldn't be asking, how are you? But no, we'd just look at you, feeling the same. The presence of God, the power of God in the house. Amen? That's what we want. We want the real thing. If God exists, I want to see him. So that's why he says, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. I want to see him. Who wants to see him? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Every time you go into prayer, the face of Jesus appears in front of you. You know, you reach out your hands and the hands of Jesus touches your hands. You know, you lift your arms in the air and the power of God comes upon you and you fill with you know the feeling? Who's had that feeling? When the, when the Holy Spirit touches you, I've got it right now. Just as I lifted my hands, the Holy Spirit's just straight down. You know, we want that because he's real, guys. He's not imaginary. You know, you can be in church and you can go to church for years and years and years and you can get so used to not seeing anything happen that you can think, you know, I'm praying to someone that doesn't hear. I'm praying to someone that doesn't see. I pray the same prayer for the last 10 years and no change. My prayer this morning was reveal what is in me 
that is stopping the flow of the Spirit. Reveal what it is in me that's stopping the move of the Spirit in the church. And I say that for all of you to pray that prayer. Because God's in the revival business. That's what God does. God, when God's in the house, there's a revival. Amen? Has to be. You can't come into a church where God is there with manifest power and not have something happen. Right? So when God's in, he's a revival God. So if we're not in revival, it's not his fault, is it? The fact that the church is not in revival is it's the fact that it's a fault with us. Something's got to change. So I ask, what is it, God? I have to pray more. I have to seek you more. I have to read the scriptures more. What is it? I have to give up sin more. More. So I'm saying, what is it? What other things do I have to uncover? Tell me what it is. What is it that's stopping it? We have to go into detail. We have to find, get the details from God. So God will go, you've, you, you've got a problem with this. And you go, oh, okay, got it. That's what it is. We need it revealed to us so that we can stop it. Because then when, it's, when it, God's cleaned up his house, when the bride is ready, what does the word say? When the bride is ready, he's going to come. Yeah, he's going to come. And when he comes, look out, there's going to be a revival. It's going to be powerful. Could this little church bring about revival? Is it possible? Two old women, 84 and 82, one stone blind, brought a revival to Lewis. Isn't that incredible? Two women. You would think an 84 and 82-year-old, like, what could they do? They're old now. They're retired they're out of, out of commission, out to pasture in a sense. You know, you're thinking like that. No way. They, they took it on themselves. They said, no way. I don't like the way our church is. I don't like the fact that the youth don't have anything to do with God. I'm going to change. We're going to change this. So they got into prayer. And so let me keep reading. So he's promised to pour water on him who is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. That is God's promise. We believe that God is a covenant-keeping God. You've got to keep that in mind. God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his covenant. We've got to keep our covenant. He must be true to his covenant engagements, meaning the things he says in his word, he must be true to the things he says in his word. So if, if the things in his word, the promises that are given are not coming out in our life, the problem's not with God because he's a covenant-keeping God. He will fulfill those things in, your, in, his, in our lives, but we have to deal with stuff in our life, and that's why we've got to ask the right questions when we're before God. What am I doing that is causing the, the Spirit not to flow in my life the way he should? He made a promise, and he must fulfill the promise. These are the thoughts that are uppermost in their minds, that, and that's how they approach God. You're a covenant-keeping God. You must fulfill your promises. Now, I believe that the prayers of those two women moved the presbytery of Lewis to do something. The presbytery met. Every minister in the presbytery representing the island of Lewis met in a town of Stornoway to discuss and to consider the situation of the island spiritually. That presbytery meeting passed a resolution 
calling upon the faithful people to view with deep concern the terrible drift away from God and the barrenness spiritually of the whole parish. So this presbytery called people to attention to the fact that the parish was in its terrible state spiritually and this terrible drift of the youth into, I suppose, unbelief. Now that resolution was read in all of the churches on the following Sabbath. And I believe, because some people believe the Sabbath is a Sunday. I believe the Sunday is the day of the Lord, the first day of the week. The Sabbath has always been the Saturday. In Greek it's the Sabbatos. So I'll just make that clear. Because I, when I read that, I, I don't agree with calling Sunday Sabbath. Uh, that resolution was read in all of the churches on the following Sabbath and printed in two of the local papers in the, in the county. Now, I'm not prepared to say what impression that made upon the people in general, nor upon the ministers in particular, but of this I am certain, that it was taken to heart in the parish of Barvis and particularly by the two old women that I've already referred to. They were so burdened that both of them decided to spend so much time in prayer twice a week. On Tuesday, they got on their knees at 10 o'clock in the evening, and they remained on their knees until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. That's five to six hours in prayer. Two old women. Now, there's a, that's a miracle of God in itself, isn't it? God was doing something in them to cause them to be in that position. Two old women in a very humble cottage. One night, one of the sisters, and I'm, I'm reading this because this is how the revival, this is pre the revival beginning. One night, one of the sisters had a vision. Now remember that in, in revival, God works in wonderful ways. In the vision, she saw a church of her fathers crowded with young people, packed to the door, and a strange minister standing in the pulpit. She was so impressed by the vision that she sent for the parish minister. And of course, he knowing the two sisters, knowing that they were two women who knew God in a wonderful way, responded to their invitation and called at the cottage. That morning, one of the sisters said to the minister, you must do something about it, and I would suggest that you call your office bearers together and that you spend with us at least two nights in prayer a week, Tuesday and Friday. If you gather your elders together, you can meet in a barn a because it was a farming community, and you can pray there, and we'll pray here in their cottage. And the minister, being a God-fearing man, a well-saved man, because in Lewis you couldn't possibly have anybody else than a well-saved man, they agreed. Uh, so the minister called his office bearers together, and the seven of them met in a barn to pray on Tuesday and Friday, and the two old women got on their knees and prayed with them. That continued for some weeks, almost a month and a half, until one night... And now this is what I'm anxious you will get a hold of. One night, kneeling there in the barn, praying, pleading this promise, for I will pour water upon the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground, a young man, a deacon in the church, got up and he read Psalm 24, 3 to 5, which is, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He that have clean hands and a pure heart, who have not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and then Duncan adds, not a blessing, but the blessing of the Lord. Then that young man closed his Bible, and looking at the minister and the other office bearers, he said some very crude words, perhaps in so, not so crude in our Gaelic language. He said, it seems to me so much humbug 
that we be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. So again, calling the ministers to holiness. Then he lifted his two hands. I'm telling you just as the minister told me. He lifted his two hands and he prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? He got no further, that young man, that he first of all fell on his knees and then he fell into a trance and is now lying on the floor of the barn. In the words of the minister, at that moment, he and his other office bearers were gripped by the conviction, and this was the conviction, that a God-sent revival must ever be related to holiness. It must ever be related to holiness. must ever be related to godliness. Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? The man that God will trust with the revival must be holy. That was the conviction. Now the power of God swept into the parish and an awareness of God gripped the community such as, as has not been known for over a hundred years. An awareness of God, that's revival. The following day, the looms, which is where you make fabric and, and so on, were silent, so there was no work done the next day. Little work was done on the farms as men and women gave themselves to thinking on eternal things. Gripped by eternal realities, and Duncan at that time was not on the island. So I'll keep reading if you don't mind. Again, one of the sisters sent for the minister and said to him, I think you ought to invite someone to the parish. I cannot give a name, but God must have someone in his mind because he saw a strange man in the pulpit. That man must be somewhere. Anyway, without reading that, they discovered Duncan Campbell. And then Duncan says, I shall never forget that night that I arrived at the pier. So he arrived, and this is what I really want to get to. He arrived at the pier on the, um, on the island, and I found myself standing in the presence of a minister who I had never seen and two of his elders that I never knew. One of the elders came over to me and he said, Mr. Campbell, I'd like to ask you a question before you leave the pier. Are you walking with God? I immediately realized that I was in the presence of men who feared God. I said to them, well, I think I can say this, that I fear God. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, that will do. In other words, I think we can trust you. The minister turned to me and he said, we know, Mr. Campbell, that you are very tired and you've been traveling all day by train and then by steamer. I'm sure you're ready for your supper and for your bed, and I wonder if you would be prepared to address a meeting in the parish church at 9 o'clock on our way home. It'll be a short meeting, and then we'll make for the man's, man's, and you'll get your supper and bed and rest until tomorrow evening. And, uh, well, it will interest you that I never got that supper. We got to the church at about a quarter to nine to find 300 people gathered. I gave an address, and I don't know if any of you have read my book called God Answers. You'll be able to find that address that I gave on that great night in that book. It's the first sermon in the book. Nothing really happened during the service. It was a good meeting, a sense of God, the consciousness of his spirit moving, but nothing beyond that. So I pronounced the benediction, and we were leaving the church at, I'd say, around a quarter to 11, a two-hour meeting. Of course, that was nothing in Lewis. 
Just as I'm walking down the aisle along with this young deacon who read the psalm in the barn, he suddenly stood in the aisle and looking up to the heavens, he said, God, you can't fail us. God, you can't fail us. You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. God, you can't fail us. And Duncan said, I was standing beside him, realizing that I'm by the side of a man who appears to know God better than I do. My dear people, we've got to be honest. Here was a young man who perhaps knew God better than I knew him. He could speak to him in that way. Could I speak to him in that fashion? He's now on his knees in the aisle and he's still praying and then falls into a trance again and just then the door opened. It's now 11 o'clock at night, so it's two hours after the 9 o'clock meeting. The local blacksmith comes back into the church and says, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Oh, we were praying that God would pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. Listen, he has done it. He's done it. When I went to the door, I saw a congregation of approximately 600 people. Where did they come from? What had happened? I believe that that very night God swept in in Pentecostal power, the power of the Holy Ghost. What had happened in the early days of the apostles was happening now in the parish of Barvis. Over 100 young people were at a dance in the parish hall. They, were thinking of, they weren't thinking of God or eternity. God was not in their thoughts. They were there to have a good night when suddenly the power of God fell upon the dance. The music ceased and in a matter of minutes the hall was empty. They fled from the hall like a man fleeing from a plague and then they made for the church. They are now standing outside. Oh yes, they saw the lights on in the church and that was the house of God and they were going to, that they were going to in their way. Men and women that had gone to bed, rose, dressed and made for the church. Nothing in the nature of publicity. No mention of a special effort except information from the pulpit on the Sabbath that a certain man was going to conduct a series of meetings in the parish covering 10 days. So God took the situation in hand. He became his own publicity agent and the hunger and the thirst gripped his people, or gripped the people. 600 of them now are at the church standing outside. This dear man, the blacksmith, turned to me and said, I think we should sing a psalm and so on. Now, I won't read any more because it's, I want to sort of uh, wrap it up. But who, who, who captured what, what happened there? If you keep reading this account, and it's, it's, it's gripping, isn't it? Elizabeth's read it. I'm sure you've read it as well, haven't you, Sharon? Um, the, this revival spread and spread. It was, uh, how many years did it last? Was it a couple of years? Quite, and nearly everyone in, in the in the Scottish Hebrides got saved. It went through the community. It just bars were getting closed and the you know the jails were empty, you know, no one could no one was doing crime and you know everything changed in that community. People were flocking to churches. They were holding daily services everywhere. Daily. People were going to church and prayer meetings and you know. So men gave themselves over to spiritual things, to, to God <clears throat> in every way. So when, when I meet on a Wednesday night for prayer, that's, this is what I'm praying for, guys. That's why I'm saying, let's pray for revival. I want you to get, a, get it in your heart. That's what I call revival. It's not your, your brother coming to know Jesus or something. That's, that's good. We need that too, amen? 
We need that. But this is God doing something beyond our capacity, beyond you know, the capacity of someone like Billy Graham who has the ability to promote his evangelistic campaign and get you know, thousands of people to his meetings and then has got this well-crafted address that he uses and stirs people's hearts emotionally you know, through uh, brilliant oratory and the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit's not present. But that's not revival. So when I'm praying for revival, I'm praying for a God moving in the, in the community, God moving by the power of the Holy Spirit, touching lives and hearts of unsaved people and they becoming God-aware. Going, just, you know, who, who remembers the day when your mind, the light went on, sort of like, and God, God, God exists. Remember that day? It's a pretty amazing time. I remember I was 21 and the lights came on. Thank God, you know what? I never thought of God before. Never even considered him. And actually, you know what? Makes perfect sense. And the, the further I went along in my faith, the more perfectly sensible it is to believe in God, actually to the point where, you know, it's ridiculous to not believe that God exists. It's just, just out of the question. It's not even... It's not, and I'm always amazed when I sit with atheists and have, have discussions with them, and I'm amazed. I'm going, so you really believe that? And they go, you really believe that um, Noah got all those animals on an ark? And I said, Yep. <laughs> What's so hard to believe? I reckon it's harder to believe that an amoeba turned into a human and had a perfect mate and they crawled up on the beach with all the perfectly functioning system compatible for each other to make babies. All from an amoeba. That's one miracle-working amoeba. That primordial soup must have incredible intelligence. And so their primordial soup is their god. You know what I mean? It's stupid. It's stupid. It's so stupid that it... it, it I can't believe that intelligent men entertain it. I always think intelligence has got to lead people to believe in God, but of course, no, it doesn't. You know, higher intelligence leads men further away for some reason, even though it's more logical to think God exists and to know, not to think it, to know it. Because everything is so clearly, it's so clearly evident that God has made everything in the universe. Amen. Is it which is more sensible that everything started from something smaller than in there and just exploded for some unknown reason and then out of that major explosion just over a period many 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 millions of billions of years life emerged. Life emerged out of an explosion. You know whenever I see an explosion on TV, usually body parts go flying everywhere, you know what I mean? You know, everything gets destroyed, usually. Isn't that what a Big Bang normally does? But this Big Bang was not like a normal Big Bang. This was a bang that had an ability to create life. And then you ask, well, who did it? Oh, the bang did it. The bang did it? How did the bang do it? Oh, well, we don't know that. And I said, maybe because you're wrong, that's why you don't know? You know, all the atheists I talk to, oh, we don't know these things. And I'll say, well, I do. You just have to, of course you don't know. If there's no intelligence behind it, then you don't know who did it, if you think that. But the fact of the matter is, there has to be intelligence behind it. You know, you watch these nature documentaries and they focus on all these different um, you know, animals and their, 
ecologies that they're living in and, and, and even the ones with the insects, you know, and you, you're, you're watching ones on insects and you just think, wow, look at this incredible thing, you know, look what it does, it spits out acid and then it goes and eats what it's spat at and, you know, and um, they got, and look at the way they mate and now the, 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 the wife is eating the husband and, you know, what a strange way of doing things, you know, you just think, all this stuff just randomly appeared by chance? Has chance got the power to create? If it does, then I should become a gambler because that means that I should create a fortune if I gamble because chance has the power to create. But who knows that people that uh, spend years and years and years in gambling and are addicted to it, who knows they're the poorest people in our community? Yeah? Because the moment they get the big win, they'll go and blow it all again. And, be, and ultimately, the, when you function by chance, you eventually lose, ultimately. Yeah? Chance has no power to create. Chance has no intelligence. It's ridiculous to say that by chance, God designed... Uh, sorry, by chance, everything that is came into existence, isn't it? It's ridiculous to say that. So... I say to the atheists, okay, let's go right back to the very beginning. Let's go right back to the very moment when everything that is came into existence. And science now proves that there was an absolute beginning, doesn't it? So we can both say that, okay, the Bible says there was an absolute beginning and so does science. So we align there. Okay, now we go right back to that starting point. You say that everything that is uh, came into existence by chance that there was no reason why it did it has no reason and rhyme there was no intelligence it was just random accident so your god is chance really a random accident all right if you if you get a petri dish and you put air in a petri dish which is what will be in it if you put a lid on it <laughs> you don't have to put it in you get some air put it in a petri dish now, if you just put a petri you put the lid on the petri dish and you've got air, you've got nothing. That's pretty well the beginning of the universe, but it's actually more than the beginning of the universe because it's got air in it. There was no air in the beginning of the universe, right? Because nothing, this is the thing, nothing is nothing. Zero, nothing. Not even blackness. Not even space. There's no space in nothing. Nothing. And Richard Dawkins wants us to understand as well. He said, I want you to understand, we are talking about absolutely nothing. So an absolute nothing is, you know what, you can't imagine it. Try to imagine nothing, right? nothing, nothing in the universe. That means no living thing, no, not a little, no pebbles, nothing. You can't imagine that, right? Now from that, so if we get a Petri dish and we put it up on a shelf for a billion, 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 billion years, What's going to appear in the Petri dish? Anything? Would you expect nothing? Would you expect a human to crawl out of the Petri dish? Why? Because time has transpired. Would you expect a human to crawl out of it? Would you expect a bug? Would you expect an amoeba? Would you expect it to fill up with a primordial soup? Would you? Would you expect lightning to suddenly appear in the Petri dish and create energy? No. And that's actually a, a better starting place than what 
atheists believe is the starting place of the universe. That's a better starting place because you've got air. At least you've got air. You go back to the start of the universe, you've got nothing, right? And you believe out of that nothing, everything that is came out of that randomly <laughs> without any logical reason why. And you think that is more reasonable than to believe in the beginning there was God who's outside of time, outside of space. He's outside of the realm that we live in. He's outside of it. He's a separate entity altogether. He's an existence beyond our comprehension. He has more power in the sense that the Bible says that he's everywhere present in the universe at once. What sort of a God is he? He's created some big planets out there, hasn't he? That dwarf our planet by a million, billion times sort of thing. There's that big and ours is this little pinprick. He created that. And not, not only is he everywhere in that massive planet at once, he's everywhere in every planet at once and he's everywhere at once. That's what the Bible says. So we're talking about an existence that cannot be compared to us in so many ways. We can be compared to him in one way though. We're created in his image. Right? But we were created to sort of appear like him but not be him, of course. We aren't gods. So they think that everything came out of nothing for no apparent reason and that that's more reasonable than to think that God created everything. And doesn't it, it just does not, what do you believe, chance or God? And so universities mock someone who believes in God. Yet what, so what they make everyone do is lean over onto the stupid side, the foolish side, the unlogical, unreasonable side. And when I say stupid, it's because the Bible says that anyone who says there is no God is a fool. And I'm not saying that. The Bible says that. Right? So if, you're, if you go to university and you accept their teaching, you've become a fool because you've accepted an unreasonable approach to God and his existence or at least an unreasonable approach to the creation of the whole universe. Does that make sense? God exists. Absolutely. I'm saying these things so when you talk to someone, don't tell them they're a fool. Don't use that approach. But does God exist? Yeah? Make sure you understand these, some of these things because sometimes you can just be talking to someone and that's exactly what they need to hear just to bring them over to salvation. Just to believe that, yeah, God exists. It's perfectly reasonable to think so. And, uh, what's your William Lane Craig is one of your favourite speakers. Who's heard of William Lane Craig? Yep, Ravi Zacharias. Anyone heard of Ravi Zacharias? Um, who's some other names? Lee Strobel. Anyone heard of Lee Strobel? You guys have got to watch these videos of these guys. These guys are out there preaching Jesus in universities. The most, you know, Harvard and, you know, all these other... John Lennox. They're preaching... John Lennox, we went and saw at the Adelaide University. And his, he was packed, packed to the rafters. And there was atheists and Christians there. And he let them have it. Right? And he had so many, you know, so much truth behind him. That all the facts of science lend itself now towards there having to be a God. So watch Lee Strobel, A Case for the Creator, is a really good one in relation to all that stuff. Um, listen to John Lennox, minister. He just, he'll blow your mind with the stuff that comes out of his mouth. And, go on. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Ray Comfort. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so all those guys, they're really, really good to listen to. They just, uh, they, it's a two-way thing. One is it instills you faith. You realise, hey, I'm not, a, I'm not believing in something unscientific. I'm not just saying to my friends, I believe by faith. And they go, oh, faith, you faith guys, you know, you're so foolish to think like that. No, we believe with reason. It's, it's reasonable to think. And they've been seeing, like William Lane Craig's always talking about converts in universities. You know, students turning to, turning to Jesus in the universities. And these guys are making these incredible inroads into, the, um, into those parts of our uh, community, you know, into the, among the intellectuals. So it's good to know that they're out there. So watch their stuff. Yeah, Ken. Yeah, Ken. Ken Hovind's an interesting one. He's um he's got some great facts though. When you watch his stuff, he's um some people find him hard to watch, but I love his so I love some of his uh, facts that he puts forward. Um, absolutely brilliant, brilliant uh, stuff, which makes the whole concept of um, evolution sound ridiculous. You know, I believe in evolution, but not not um, uh, macro evolution. I believe in micro evolution. Yeah, hundred reasons. Why. <laughs> yeah, like that. Hundred reasons why evolution is stupid. Mm. All right. So I think I've gone everywhere today, haven't I? So trying to get back, just just to cap off. Um, God exists. When we pray to Him, He hears us. If we're not seeing revival like what what's written in here, then the the issue lies with us. We've got to go deeper in prayer. We've got to change so that God can manifest his church. Amen? All right, so let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just thank you for this time to minister to these wonderful people. And I I just pray that um, what was said today will have uh, blessed everyone here in some form. I pray that your spirit will move in them all week long and stir them to uh, take a hold of the faith and to... um, uh, to walk stronger in it, more powerfully in it, so that they could serve you to the utmost of their ability, but also by the Spirit in everything. I pray that they would become more God-aware all week, that your Spirit will sort of uh, grab them and grip them regularly each and every every day so that they don't let go of you, but they stay uh, fixed on you um, with all their being. And I just pray that um, you just bless bless us this week, Cover us, protect us, uh, keep us free from sickness, keep us uh, strong and healthy, Lord. Um, heal everyone in the church of anything that's, uh, and, and our relatives and people that we know that we love, Lord, that are also struggling with sicknesses and illnesses. I just pray that your healing power will go out to them and that you will um, uh, use us to uh, pray for them more and, and to believe that you can do miracles today. So um, ignite our faith this week, Lord, and I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.